Vavavoom! In honor of X and Deep Water, what cinematically sexy moment didn't work for you? I'm Katie Rich, and not to defame the recently departed William Hurt, but Body Heat, for the most part, did not really have that much sexiness for me. I think because when the sex scenes are so clearly a bad idea and going to end in pain, uh, you know, I can't get that into it. I'm Matt Patches, and I gotta admit, most of Carol, to be honest, <gasps> not really not really that <laughs> sexy. I'm not really that into the movie, if I recall. Shit. <laughs> uh, it should be called Trigger Warning with Matt Patches. Gotta start yeah. the podcast on the right note. <laughs> it's me, David the Seven, and anything Jessica Rabbit, because my mind likes accurate proportions. Uh wow. Um I, I mean I am I'm David Ehrlich. I'm also just flabbergasted by this by this segment by Matt's answer. Um my nemesis. <laughs> Uh, but I guess off the top of my head, as someone who is pausing the new Adrian Line movie, Deep Water, to record this episode, um, I... A true fan of cinema, right? I, yeah, to, pausing the version of it that has a watermark of my email address and, you know, 10-inch letter. Is bigger, that your I mean, finish? the entire screen. Anyway, it is. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, of course, have Geely on the brain. Ooh. It's turkey time. Gobble, gobble. Uh, when... Jennifer Lopez spreads her leg for Ben Affleck to go down on her. Uh, I remember sitting in the theater because, of course, I saw that opening weekend. Had to. It was an event. Uh, did not make it through the whole thing. But, uh, wow. uh, yeah, iconic. Sea slugs and such. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine, too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 384. It is Pandemic 104. It's the week of Wednesday, March 16th. That's the day that in 1994, American figure skater Tanya Harding pled guilty to felony attack on former Olympic teammate Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> hey. Uh, it's also probably the date in 2020 that we had our first pandemic episode. So yeah, I was going to ask you guys: When do you think the pandemic part or phase of our podcast is over? Do you think every time we ask we there? this, <laughs> oh, no, we, this is jinxing it. Yeah, oh, I know. Crap. Don't do don't do this. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It will, I'm, it will sad, become... I'm sad to say that we are absolutely not there, regardless. So yeah, um, I, I don't feel it, but I'm just yeah. like, when is it? Like, what is our milestone anymore? I don't know. We're just living it. We're forever I, the pandemic I, I think... podcast. I think we're trying to be responsible and not call it till it's till it's truly over. So hang the in there, everybody. Of Sonic the Hedgehog two, then after mm. which is finally uh, lapped Sonic the Hedgehog, which which kicked off the pandemic. Um, they made an entire sequel exactly. in the length of, of this pandemic. Uh, we can we can start to see how it is. But I was just reading a report about how China is dealing with their worst outbreak since uh, this whole thing started. Oh, so dear. it's gonna be a minute. Great. Well. I thought Warren Beatty walked out and he said the pandemic was over, but oh no, yeah, he's changing the uh, envelope here. Yeah, yeah, like read the wrong oh, envelope. Lordy. The pandemic just getting Jordan, started. Jordan, Jordan said, Horowitz oh. is here to tell you to keep your mask on. <laughs> uh, okay, David, do we have yes. any reviews? Uh, we do. We do. The first review is from Taylor Eliza Six. A Gen Z Cusper update. Oh, I love those. I love our Gen Ooh. Z corner. Hey. <laughs> I have never seen an Anaconda on cable or otherwise, but may check it out oh, no. on your recommendation. As far as my associate, I mean, I just to pause it there, Taylor Eliza 6, if you do see it, I insist that it be on cable and that you come into it somewhere between 15 and 40 minutes late uh, for the mm. prime experience. As far as my associations with Owen Wilson and J-Lo, the first thing that comes to mind for Owen Wilson is Marley and Me, since I was really pushed to kids my age when the movie came out. Not to mention that it's definitely not a kids movie. As far as J-Lo, she mostly just existed in the cultural landscape for most of my childhood. As a teenager, I watched reruns of her romantic comedies on cable, but the monoculture of Jenny from the Block never quite reached me. Now, the thing I most closely associate with her is in my lifetime is Hustlers. And then I'd probably wow. say her music and most recent Super Bowl halftime performance. Growing up in the 2000s and coming of age in the 2010s meant that most 90s culture was mostly vague impressions until the recent overwhelming resurgence. Happy to report, as the token 20-something, I was also thrilled to hear your review of The Sky is Everywhere. I was a big Jandy Nelson fan as a teenager, 
I knew vaguely of this movie, but didn't know it ended up on Apple TV+. For me, the high watermark of YA adaptations will always be perks of being a wallflower because of a confluence of factors and being the exact right age to be devastated by an 80s-tinged nostalgia piece, which makes more recent work, oh, his most recent work, talking about the, uh, the author. Um, oh. Uh, well, yeah, he directed Dear Evan Hansen, yes. It was with the, uh, Stephen Chomsky, mm-hmm. right? That's the name? Noam Chomsky? Uh, Chomsky. Noam Chomsky. Oh, right. Noam Chomsky's Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> uh, his most recent work on the Dear Evan, Ham- Evan Hansen movie, that much more saddening. I hope more movies like this and the half of it keep getting made for streaming. Well, thank you very much. For uh, checking in with us, for that was our weekly Gen I, Z Cusper report. I have a question for all the Gen Z listeners out there. Um, I, I was, I feel like I'm very familiar with all the accidentally terrifying, saw it too early in life, kind of millennial touchstones. What freaked kids out when they accidentally saw these movies? I don't mm, know what they are your, for Gen your Return to Oz's. Yeah, or like for yeah. me, it was the dip. Like when I saw the shoe get dipped, that or like when Christopher Lloyd was ripping oh, his face Roger off Rabbit. Roger Rabbit. Yeah, that shit was like, why am I watching this when I'm seven? Um, but I actually yeah. don't know what those movies are for the next generation. And if we, I mean, our, our review here just name checks Marley and me, which I'm pretty sure came out when we've all been doing this job and we've been podcasting for yeah, that definitely. long. We might have, like, we did have a Marley and me episode. Uh, yeah, possible. it seems yeah. very possible. So I'm wondering if there's movies that we've actually covered or like see uh, in our professional lives now that have actually been those uh, types of movies for, for the younger <laughs> kids. So please tell us. I'm That's very fascinated. Question. I am pleased to report that Marley and Me predates this podcast. Thank um, goodness. Yeah, not by Our much. Young. Uh, we have one <laughs> more review from uh, this listener's username is David Ehrlich, and he says, uh, you have two weeks until the release in limited uh, New York and San Francisco uh, and LA of <laughs> everything, everywhere, all the time. Please write it down in your calendars. Circle it, because some of us were not allowed to talk about it on this week's episode because it was deemed... Too soon we want to, review to hype it. up a masterpiece. Okay. Uh, so just you know, make sure everyone out there, when that movie comes to your town, either on March 25th or possibly on a wider release the week after, you'll know, see it. We will be talking about it here eventually. I'm going to check iTunes and make sure that this was actually a review. All the time. And if it's no, not, it's not we called cut. everything everywhere. It's not even called that. It's called everything everywhere all at once. Patches has totally <laughs> mind fucked me out of. Uh, Ooh, add that to the sexy scenes the category. Of this uh, movie I love. Um, I also wrote it incorrectly like seven times in my review and had to change it before it got published. But um, everything everywhere all at once makes a lot more sense for this movie than everything everywhere all the time. Uh, anyway, if you would like to re- leave, a, leave us a review, uh, either a real one or one that I just uh, invented for myself for the purposes of shoehorning in a movie into this episode, go on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. Read it live on the air. Great fun. We also have an email. We should plug that, an email Ooh. address, an email oh, yeah. address. It's at fitwr.podcast at gmail.com, and it is here to save us from having to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, because we have two, but they're evergreen, so let's hold them. You the cooling man, you send you up, freezing cooling, nine to nine two zero. all right. Hey guys, do you like scary movies? Do you like scary movie franchises? Because if you, oh, I mean, it's a rhetorical question. I think we're going to get our chance to answer. Kind of a group question. Yeah, I mean, you could all answer individually. (laughs) Here it is, though. Uh, Scream Five. It's now streaming on uh, the Paramount Plus. Uh, So if you want to check it out and didn't see it in theaters when it had its in theaters only release, now would be the time. And what if I, I did, don't want to check it out and didn't see it in theaters? Well, then maybe I could like talk you into it, David. Ooh. Because here's the thing. I like Scream for what it is. I think I've talked about when we were reviewing uh, the Fear Street series, how it was like dumb and kind of violent, but how I think every generation kind of needs its Scream of like dumb, violent horror. And I thought Fear Street had like a little bit of intelligence to it. Scream. Coming back for its fifth installment after Wes Craven's fourth installment was, I believe, like years and 2011, years ago. 2011, I think, yeah. Did not yeah, predate so, this podcast. Did not predate <laughs> this podcast. 
uh, was pretty good, I thought. Scream 4 was Wes Craven getting mad at the internet generation with uh, Hayden Panettiere and Emmy Rossum and a whole bunch of uh, younger people. people. Uh, can we just pause for a second to, re- to remember them? reflect on Hayden, Hayden Panettiere's hot as hell look in that movie? Yeah. <laughs> just worked for me. Okay. I, uh, she only appears in a still in this movie, which, but I guess that means she could still be alive. So maybe he could come back for Scream 6. Probably not. Anyway. Kirby? Popeye Kirby? Kirby 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 uh, Kirby Reed I believe her last name was uh, in case you are the kind of person who has seen all the Scream movies this one is right up your alley because it is baldly on its face uh, like Kevin Williamson was trying to uh, turn horror movies on its head this one is out and out a requel or a legacy sequel they argue over what to call it and they call out what they're doing as they're doing it. And I found it, once again, entertaining. Uh, because I think it's more of a Scream movie in the sense that Scream movies are long whodunits with occasional stabbings. They're not horror movies about like incredibly complex set pieces. And they're not necessarily uh, stories about uh, particular types of culture. It's Sidney Prescott has to fight some idiot who thinks they know something new about the Scream franchise. And they come up against Nev Campbell and they fail. I feel like Scream 5, you know, checks all those boxes. Uh, but I was wondering if any of you that have seen it um, chuckled as much as I did at the uh, conclusion of what's oh. bad in this era of horror I movies. Mean, I mean, I laughed a lot. And, and you describing it here, I'm just like, yeah, maybe Scream, they're not really that interesting of a horror movies. They're not horrific. Although this one gets pretty gory by the uh, final stabbing um and final encounters gets really gross well java was just watching the first scream a while ago and like they're like stabbing each other and accidentally going too deep and like i'm just saying people get slashed in way we have come a long way since the original scream in gore effects and what you can appear to do to a human mouth the human chest uh, it's gross um but i think that the movies themselves like why do we want to watch 90 minutes until the big reveal like what gets us there and it's really a comedy right it's really jokes and it almost works just like scary movie except scary movie is cranked all the way up to spoof levels and here it's more like it feels like a judd apatow horror movie or something and and maybe they all do and that's why they keep working you can only do them every few years you could never make this into uh freddy or or nightmare on elm street uh or halloween like they're just not functional in that way. They're comedies, and they have to, they've always been meta, and they have to go as hard as possible in the comedy. Um, because, as you said, I don't think the set pieces are that interesting. Like, people run away from a guy with a knife almost every time. There's really not a whole lot of different interesting ways to stage that. And this movie does not find them, in my opinion. But they play it for gags. Like, it's about one-liners. It's about where people are popping out of, and who, like, how they're slapping you across the face with red herrings. This movie is... Just going full slappy. Yeah. And I mean, if you're someone, again, who watches all the Scream movies, when they got to the location of the final showdown, uh, I, within the first shot, I like pause the movie. I'm like, ja- Java, you know where that is? You know where we are right now? And she's like, no, <laughs> some like house party. And I'm like, OK, there are different levels of Scream movie fans. <laughs> and people like me are gonna be like really enjoying every reference and every sort of like tongue in cheek uh, film, uh, I guess horror movie commentary about how in in world Ryan Johnson directed Stab Eight or something and everybody hated it uh, because it was like up its own ass and that sort of motivates part of the plot of this movie. I think it's really clever and it's light. I like what you were saying, Patches about how it's sort of a comedy. I don't know if it's necessarily a comedy as much as it's like a thriller where I could kind of see anybody die and be like, oh, and now they're dead. Um, you have some returning, you know, cast to hand off to the new cast. So uh, they're, of course, at higher risk because they're older than everybody else. But I don't think I'm ever, um, you know, feeling emotional tugs as much as I'm thrilled when no, this the kills movie are decides to pivot. Even when they're killing, yeah. like the main cast it feels like a punchline rather than oh no my favorite character just died or oh no like the heart of the movie gets slain and we didn't see it coming it's not that kind of twist it's like here's your end credits boom and then (laughs) it's that's funny 
Um, <laughs> and and the ghost face is absurd. Like in this movie, he act, the ghost face killer actually has like a, a a voice modulator. I found that really humorous. Like, what do they have to do? Or there's a great bit where um, one of the teenagers is been stabbed. Obviously, he's bleeding out, and he's trying to turn off his phone because his phone has like a location thing on it, and his hands are covered in blood. But of course, in the year 2022. If your hands are covered in blood, you cannot use your touchscreen phone. Um, it is a gag, and it is a very funny gag. Yeah, well, I mean, that one is sort of like a Scream 4. I really felt like Scream 4 was like, look at these kids and their media and their, like, meta-ness, like, fuck them. And, like, Wes Craven is, uh, you know, was one of the people who was capable of doing that and not making me mad about it. This one, we're with them, I think, is, like, I like most of the new cast. Uh, especially what's her face from Yellow Jackets, um, who shows up as uh, Jamie Kennedy's character's like cousin. So she's <laughs> which one? Everyone is related jacket? to old version. Uh, the young black woman, uh, lesbian character. Oh, the young Taisa. What is her name? Yes. Uh, wait. The she's she plays Jamie. Her Kennedy's name is Jasmine Savoy Brown. Oh, the older version of Taisa. No. The younger, no, 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 no. The young, oh. the younger version plays Jamie Kennedy's like cousin. So okay. he, there's a lot of he, like, there's a lot he, of he, nephews and nieces and cousins in this movie. You see, I was just worried there was like a weird age gap thing there, but okay, continue. No, no, no. There's a, they, they try to keep the ages as close as they can. I will say this: uh, it will depend on you trying to do some math uh, for characters you've never seen before, which is fine. <laughs> but the characters that do come back, like Nev Campbell. Looks great. I like this take on Sydney, where it's just like, this is what I show up to do every ten years, and I've gotten really fucking good at it. I I think that but she's dialed Scream down from like Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween, thankfully, where she's not. I don't know. She's not living in the woods waiting for Ghostface to return. She's like, I'm a mom, and Ghostface is back, so I have to kill him so that I can continue to be a mom. I loved that energy. Yeah, she's like, I left the I left the the kids with their dad, <laughs> and I'm coming back. Mom's night out. Mer- Let's go to, fuck up to commit <laughs> Ghostface like my fifth. <laughs> My fifth legally uh, self-defensible murder that now I'm yeah. just putting myself in the way of. But yes, that's it. that's the plot of the movie. And I, it plays out like you would expect. I don't know. It's hard for me to say this is like groundbreaking. But what it does do is I do think it revives Scream. Like if they could keep doing it this whip smart. Uh, the but new I directors are I think we're Matt Bettini, yeah. Olfen, and Tyler Gillett. They did like some VHSs. Ready or uh, not, and oh, uh, the ra- they're the radio, they're radio sounds. Yeah, 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 yeah radio they also sounds, made yes. uh, uh, hide and seek, which yes, oh, that, that was the name of the movie, right? Uh, which I liked a lot. Um, no, ready or not, it was no, ready or not, else. ready or not, ready or not. Yeah, yeah, uh, not to be confused with hide and seek, which, which also is was almost comedic. Like it is, uh, yeah, it was funny. I mean, yeah. it was funny and clever and well done, and was a really delightful August uh, time at the movies, um, and yet. I, I feel like every bell that could be rung uh, with Scream had been rung. And I, I really, despite you know, being high on these directors, just could not muster the energy to go and see this and still will not be able to do I think, so in my own home. I think the key um, here is, is cultural specificity in two ways. The movie is reaping internet language and, and internet conversation and the way we talk about movies. So that helps differentiate it from every other screen. It does not feel like a retread and also makes fun of trying to even make another screen movie, which does help. Uh, it could get very annoying yeah. seeing people knock the, the franchise machine at work. But in here, in this case, it's all set up. It's all part of the legacy of this franchise and it, and it works. And the other thing is what Dave, you were getting at, which is I think scream four stumbles a bit because it's making fun of like the internet kids or like the, the, these young millennials, they're avocado toast, such and such, old man screaming at clouds. Um, in this case, I think it actually takes this kind of internet generation more seriously and just understands how they can become a little cynical. Like, what's interesting about the Jasmine Savoy Brown characters, for part of the movie, she's sitting on the couch watching a stab movie amidst, uh, like, there's there's a killer out there. Like, everyone is worried. There should not be a party. Everyone is going to get killed, but they still have parties, and they're still, like, laughing at a movie based on horrific real events that are now taking place around them, and there's this kind of, like, disaffected, uh, dis- like, detachment that well, does feel really I mean, true. Parties, the, the, the party element notwithstanding, I mean, I can think about everyone collectively watching Contagion during the first right. of the pandemic. Yes. Uh, maybe not laughing their heads off at it, but it does seem to be a recognizable human impulse. Uh, I mean, I do, I do know what happens in this movie. Uh, I do know what it's about. I think that the the people that they position as the bad guys 
is, as Matt is saying, sort of responsive to the current era in a way that sounds clever to me. Um, I just, you know, I just... I mean, it doesn't make me feel good about uh, talking about Um, movies online uh, and and being a person who... No, but it's like, that's the thing, is like, (laughs) do I... Do I, real of all people, like, do do we need um, a, a reminder about how toxic online fandoms can be? Um, and often are. You don't. I don't need my Facebook because you're, I don't need <laughs> your head to the toilet on that catharsis. one, but everyone else does. Yeah. So everyone else should watch Scream. It's on Paramount+. Plus. Yep. We're, we're, li- we're living in a time well, period my, where well, people think that, like, the Snyder Cut people won. And right. I need to be very clear <laughs> that nobody won in that situation. But Dave, can, my question <laughs> Sorry, to you Rich. as someone who saw and recommended this movie is yeah. do you think it is feasible, maybe not likely, uh, I think that's too much to ask of any movie, but feasible that someone who is sort of in the, you know, Snyder cut camp, or really any of those hostile and aggressive online fandoms would watch this and have that that gif reaction of like, wait, we're the baddies <laughs> sort of thing? Um, I'm... I think because the film holds off on actually saying toxic fandom until the very end, I think there's a slight possibility, yeah. I think if you're an early teenage boy between the age of, like, 13 to, like, maybe 16, like, yeah, maybe this is the type of movie that sort of will eventually you'll realize it was trying to push you in a direction, not so much entertain you. I don't know if we need a ton of those movies, but I'd much rather have this than a Scream 5 that was just like, we're, we're going to do the new horror thing. I'd much rather have a Scream movie where people are like, I like the Babadook better as they're running away than a Scream that tried to be the Well, Babadook, that's the other thing. It's you know? not just referential to horror movies, necessarily. It's, it's, it's actually about something more common or more, uh, bigger than just referential. Here are the rules to horror movies today. Like, it goes way right. beyond that. It is about culture itself, and I think that helps it. It's the people versus George Lucas of Scream movies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a sell, but it is fun, though. Scream. It's not called yeah. Scream 5. Well, fun fun, and streaming. It, you will find it on your streaming service as Scream, parentheses, 2022, not 5 Cream, because people are idiots. <laughs> For this week's mini segment, we're going to just test each other. We we wanted to ha- we had so many thoughts about so many things. We didn't know what to pick, so now it's just hot take round. Everybody, we're gonna deal in hot takes. Everyone gets one hot take. Here's mine. This weekend, I watched Coco, the uh, Pixar film from 2017. I have seen this movie. I definitely fell asleep during it. I have really no memory of Coco. But uh, after talking to some of my coworkers about if. Uh, my daughter, who's now four, could handle Coco. Uh, everyone thought yes, because she has watched the first seven minutes of Up, which, you know, that's a whole thing about death and mm-hmm. growing old. So everyone thought mm-hmm. Coco, which mm-hmm. is explicitly about, like, pe- the land of the dead and people dying and, and your family not being with you anymore, she could watch it. Um, it went okay. There were a lot of questions. She was, like, taking a poop the next day, being like, uh, never grow old and please never die. And I was like, ah, right, just go to the bathroom, okay? Um, mm. But here's my thing. Pixar kind of exploits death, don't you think? Like, the, mid- the second wave Did of Pixar Did you explain to her how, like, it's possible that she could get the best of both worlds? That, like, you could not grow old, but also die? Oh, yeah, that's true. I, I could just, like, helped. drive off wow. a cliff or something. This yeah, I should have been a little frank. This podcast also exploits death. No, here's my thing. Like, obviously, there's a whole myth around Pixar and the first wave of films. Oh, we're going to do Toy Story. I had the idea for Finding Nemo. Now, there was a second wave of films with Up and Coco. And I'm just like, and and I feel like Incredibles dips a little into this. Toy Story 3, sending them almost to hell. Pixar exploits death in a way. Don't you think? Like, they really go back to the we all die bin a little too often. Mm. And Soul gets into this, too. Because it's just like, of course mm. I'm, of course I'm gonna be emotional. Me? I just think it's like a kind of an easy play. Coco is an okay movie that I just get hammered by in the end when it's like we all die. 
And I'm like, of course I'm crying. That's exploitation. Hmm. I, I agree with Patches, especially as it pertains to Toy Story 3, which is a movie that I felt so cynically manipulative and, and so over the top in how it plays into that whole notion. At the end, yeah, I was rolling one. my eyes out of my head. I was just, get me the fuck out of this fucking movie theater. I, I remember, really, and that, that was a big turning moment for me caring about Pixar movies, I think, by and large, in terms of looking forward to them. Because there was a moment, like, you know, uh, Ratatouille um, and Wally and some of those movies where they, they were earning their sort of event status among cinephiles of all kinds. And then uh, took a turn and started to feel like it was... It was just playing into Disney adults and for children. Now I'm getting the sense that they're rebounding a little bit. Luca was delightful. I hear wonderful things about turning red. Oh, we'll get so, there. Well, you're about to like, hear some of them. Crack knuckle. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's uh, not I agree with you on Toy Story 3. I, like, I think Coco gets its power not from the notion that like you will die and your loved ones will die, but like who remembers you and your legacy. Like, I think those are, those are related, but different things. Like, I think it's really because you're dead. Toy Story three is just like these characters you love are sinking into incinerator, <laughs> but also like it just because you're gone, you know, like the, it's not about like, like remember me is written by him when he's alive because he can't be with his daughter. Not because yes. He's and dead. now he's dead. You know, and that's it's, why it's you're about, crying like, at the end when the grandma is hearing the song again. Like, he's dead. Everyone's dead. Everyone will be dead. And no, because them. it's also about like her having her memories. Like, uh, I love Coco. I mean, I think Coco. Don't... I don't. I don't know if I agree with Patch's take on Coco. I do think that Pixar has sort of an Andrew Stanton problem overall, where they often confuse concepts for character. I mean, they do this literally in, in not Andrew Stanton. Pete um, Doctor. Pete Doctor. Pete Doctor. Uh, yeah, you're not they, a soul they, fan. They do that literally in his you're movies in a way that I find really. No, and I'm not a fan of, uh, I am really not a fan of Inside Out, which is a movie I don't really feel like works on any level. And I think because it's only that all the time. You don't like Bing Bong It's not necessarily death, but it's this idea of just, no, but it's the way that they they try and build character out of concepts and fall flat. Whereas, you know, not to go to the most obvious and hackneyed route in this conversation, but you look at something like Spirited Away or really any of the studio people. And you see what they, how they like, they flirt with, the concept of death in the afterlife, but are able to make movies that are emotionally involving without immediately busting out the big guns. Um, and that is a skill that I am happy to see Pixar embrace from time to time, like in films like Luca and I'm guessing Turning Red. All right, one hot take down. Katie, hot take number two. My hot take isn't that hot because I think everyone agrees with me, but it's fucking bullshit that Netflix canceled the Babysitter's Club. That show cannot have been expensive <laughs> to make. It was completely delightful. It is IP that is valued by a lot of people. Netflix turns out so much shit that I do not understand when they choose to cancel anything. And I would like them to I guess reconsider. I no one watched it. What I don't know who else is going to pick it, it up, so but maybe cheap. someone else will pick it up. I guess. not. I mean, everyone on my Twitter feed watched it, which is obviously representative of America as a whole. <laughs> but yeah, it's got to be so cheap. They, they, they filmed it in Vancouver. Needed more witchers. Uh, it was so good. And I just, it could have run for a... It could have run forever, and it bums me out so much that it's gone. And I hope that anyone who knows a teenage girl or was one or has a daughter or anything or just likes, you know, feelings will watch it. Did we but, have a story from the, the books that we never got to see adapted that you would have liked to see? Oh, God, that's such a good question. Uh, oh, yeah, they all go to the beach together. Ooh. Uh, I want to say it's like Sea Island. That's not right, but like they go to like the Jersey Shore. Like my concept of what like northeastern beaches is all built by them going to the beach together. I also feel like Marianne and Logan really never let their romance get off the ground, um, which is probably age appropriate. But you know, when you're reading these books when you're eight and it's about thirteen year olds, you're like, whoa, the most romantic thing ever. So, justice for Marianne and Logan. All right, well that's sad. I guess mine is also going to be sad in somewhat. Uh, start off by saying, you know, trans rights are human rights and things are really shitty for anybody that wants to go (laughs) to a theme park right now, uh, with, uh, Queen rolling over there, still feeding money in the universal, uh, Harry Potter's or not feeding money from, and, uh, you know, Disney and the Galactic Star Cruiser, uh, getting all tied up in the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida. Uh, they're trying to backpedal real hard. At least Disney is. So we'll see if that manages to happen. Not a great time. To go to a theme park and support our trans friends who are under assault by lots of uh, 
laws and uh, whatnot. Just the world is out to get them, uh, particularly, I feel, at this Wait, month. I'm, is I'm your so hot- afraid this, this uh, <laughs> is going to somehow be in support of J.K. Rowling, given your opening. Nope. No. Okay, good. No. The hot take is what? don't go to theme parks at all. Oh, okay. If Dave came out with a hot, if Dave was going to come out with a hot take and support J.K. Rowling, he I would started with a qualifier. So he was like, "I, I know." <laughs> Huge I preamble here, guys. Right. I, I, I am seeing Fantastic Beast three, and I am buying <laughs> it every day for a week. That is my. <laughs> that is the hill Dave will die on. Fantastic Beast three. I have chose Mads Mikkelsen, Quinn Rewald. But what I do, what I do want to bring up is. The newest season of Star Trek Discovery is still doing um, a job introducing two of its trans characters. Uh, they are Trill, uh, which means they have they're host for a different alien species, which is a way they were sort of touching on. Yes, yeah, non-binary. There's a non-binary, and then there is a trans one. Uh, but since it is Star Trek, they have ported both of these contexts or both of these uh, themes through various sci-fi themes. And I don't think it's working. I think it's a little bit of season two of Glee when it really hit the like, uh, take care of our gay high school friends a little bit too hard. Like I would like the non-binary character and the trans character who are now two separate characters for a while they were sharing a body and it was all mixed up. But I would like for them to have, I would like for them to have uh, storylines that just treat them like normal crew members. I feel like they've been a little uh, ghettoized into being representative which is good. We need representation, but it doesn't need to be flat and it doesn't need to necessarily be something that a person from not one of those communities would have come up Normalized with. Normalized Like, trill. what if the computer had to decide a uh, gender? Uh, which, you know, we don't need to get there. So uh, I didn't want to cut that come off as like any sort of anti-trans thing. I just think it's bad television storytelling right now on Star Trek Discovery. Well, Only with something- that, I'm digging the rest of the season. That's something that gay characters went through a lot, like, well before Glee, right? Whereas, like, if you were a gay character on our show, or, like, probably, like, female characters in some contexts, black characters in some contexts, like, we are here to prove a lesson about tolerance and justice. And, like, it just takes a long time for that to evolve. I feel like it's gotten faster, though. Like, that the the time it takes to introduce a character on a show and then, like, let them become a real character has gotten shorter. So that's that's Well, promising. if you want to see... Yeah, uh, I'm hoping that this is, like, a brief Did we thing. talk about a Just Like That, the Sex of the City sequel series at all on the podcast because oh boy howdy that is this issue to like we're talking about che diaz yes che diaz is the best thing but also the worst show oh my lordy lord anyway it's weird to see that uh in modern storytelling but again i definitely think we should have uh representation it's just that's my star trek hot take for the month david a hot take david Uh, you know i (laughs) I feel like I'm out of the hot take business. Like I, I don't know how you guys space. felt, but but no, when yeah, I, no one's listening. It's fine. I mean, I feel like I've just really conditioned myself since since having a child and like really trying to redirect my energy away from giving a shit what anyone is saying on the internet uh, to focusing on you know being responsible for another human life. That I've sort of conditioned myself away from reflexively having hot takes, and sometimes if I find myself having an opinion that wildly disagrees for uh, with the with you know, the discourse, um, I will either, if it's something I'm writing about, you know, for work, I will just process it through whatever I'm writing, or I will simply just keep it to myself and move on with my life. So and, you're saying you know, your hot take is, are... you're being censored by, you're you, being silent. Canceled, <laughs> you're being silent. I know. Okay. Very wise as a university. My, my hot take is that everyone should shut the fuck up. Um, in general, hey. I just, I think that's Solid really, take. You um, yeah, you also could have just done like a nonsense. There, there is like, one. Uh, I mean, but what's my hot take about Elden Ring? It fucking rules. I wish I had more time to play it. We should make daycare should seven days walls. a week and free so that parents can, you know, be free from their children <laughs> to play more Elden Ring. Um, uh, no, I think, uh, I, you know, I, it's like I have as many opinions as ever. Don't feel really the need to say them. Uh, keeping my social media self-promotional and light. I'm sure as soon as I say this, I will step right into some shit tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but David uh, had all these try and, uh, try Russia thoughts he was going to share, but I guess you're not going for <laughs> yeah. it. No, I think David wants to talk about the Williams sisters. And how <laughs> no, I, okay, no, I will say, I will say, not a hot take, but yeah, just to, to find some way of closing the button, closing the loop on the segment. Um, it makes me proud as a Rangers fan that our Russian superstar, Artemi Panarin, is a, and is a, and has been for many years, a vocal anti-Putin critic so much so that it was 
Uh, I mean, the details of this will really never come out, but all signs suggest that last year when there was a uh, very suspicious accusation against him for sexual assault back in Russia, it was part of a Russian Kremlin psyop um, uh, because they're targeting, you know, foreign uh, or not foreign, but, uh, you know, inter- Russians, prominent Russians who work uh, abroad. Um, and I am proud that he is our superstar, whereas uh, Alex Ovechkin, who is on the Capitals and whose profile photo on Instagram last I checked is still him arm in arm around Putin and has been a Putin loyalist Dang. forever, uh, bit his tongue in half when they asked him how he felt about the war the day that the day after it started. So uh, I'll take Panarin hot over take. Ovechkin. And if that's a hot take for three <laughs> hockey fans out there, then so be it. The ice is getting steamy. The ice is tilted. Hot take, cold sport. Here comes the hot snapper, I'm the lyrical gangster, Murderer. big up the crew in the area, Murderer. still have you like that, no, no, we don't die, yes, we multiply, anyone press will hear the valet sing, act like you know, Uh, Well, guys, it's been like maybe a decade since there was a uh, a Pixar movie about uh, mothers and daughters that I liked, and Dave photoshopped <laughs> my mother as a bear as uh, as punishment for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so How are dare we now? You like that movie? <laughs> are we now ready to re to revisit the Brave Wars and talk oh about Turning God. Red, which is another movie about a mom who turns into? Oh, I wish you uh, hadn't contextualized it that yeah, way. That, you didn't awesome. think about Brave while watching Turning Red. No, I didn't think about Brave it's while watching. So Red. It's so much of the same, same thing, stuff, yeah. except good. I mean, I did. Except very good. I, I uh, change of yeah. I I don't remember Brave well enough. Nearly, I'm sure Turning Red is better than Brave. Um, Turning Red. It is a, a movie by Domi Shi who made Bao, which is one of the best Pixar shorts in the last couple of years. Uh, it is aggressively Canadian, which I really enjoy. It is set in the uh, Chinese immigrant culture of Toronto. And just like full of shots of the sea. If only they went to the, the Scotia Bank Canadian... and rode the escalator. Well, they go to the um, what it's now called the Rogers Center, but it's the Sky Dome in two thousand two. Um, I-, I looked this up because I was like, is that a real place? Um, it yeah, a lot of the Canadian flag and currency and uh, streetcars and everything else you can possibly think of. Um, and it is about a girl named May who is uh, 13 and loves boy bands and her friends and uh, doesn't want to be like the perfect precious daughter to her parents anymore, um, which is a very relatable thing for probably lots of boys. And I know lots of girls. Um, and then uh, as she is probably getting her period for the first time, although it is only left as subtext in the movie, uh, she also turns into a giant red panda when she is uh, upset, which is not something that happens to most no. people. Oh, I was about uh, to ask if that if if you do that. Also. That it happened to me. Yeah, no, all, mostly metaphorical for me. I wasn't lucky enough to. There's like, a lot about panda. periods that I think us men don't know. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure Turning Red gets into anything that like you probably don't know. You can let me know if Turning Red contained revelations for you about menstruation. Um, because did you, you all live with women? Did you? And I figured you would probably know something. Did, is this a personal question? I, like, do you remember when you got your period? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, like, is that yeah, a vivid memory? Does. Yeah, because you read about it so much in culture first. Like everyone reads "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret," which is entirely about. We're, wait, we're getting that you, movie. Did this any year, of you guys read? I know. Wait, did any of you guys ever read that? No. Yeah, I did. You did? Okay. I wondered how much of a gender gap there is on Me. that book. No one ever gave it no to me. It I blame up. my parents. I mean, well, so <laughs> this is a real tangent, but in "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret," it's written in like the seventies, and I think at that point. You had to have like a belt to keep a pad in because oh, they didn't have like they didn't like stick the way that they do now. Uh, and so the idea of a menstrual belt really stuck in my head, and I did not know that <laughs> I didn't have to. You didn't do have that. to do that. It was really a relief. I said uh, that at some you, point technology. to somebody from that book, and then they're really? like, "You're making that up." And nope. I'm like, "I, I, nope. I thought I was." Show me your menstruation. Uh, it, uh, maybe I should have asked my mom. If she had to do that. Um, this is how turning red's gonna yeah, bring me closer yeah. to my mother. Anyway. <laughs> Um, this movie's delightful. I didn't expect it to turn into as much of a, like, giant shooting laser monster movie as it does at the end, and maybe we can have a spoiler section to get into that, um, but I think the power of it is really not in that, and more in, like, both the relationships and the specificity of where it is set and when it is set in the boy band, uh, which has an original song by Billie Eilish and Phineas that's, like, great and, like, perfect for the period. There may be one that's particularly good, but if I'm correct, they actually wrote several songs for the movie. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think it's all like all EP. of the Four Town songs. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, it's way all they're all way better than the song from the Bond movie. I know that. Much. That is definitely true. Um, oh, uh, and, oh, I mean, I, yeah. I, I have to say, full disclosure, I have not seen Turning Red or listened to these songs. But how and dare you? Did write a very June. long piece oh, about how she David, wrote that, that Bond song. David, that song is the, the song in the Bond movie is it's not terrible. Good. Yeah, the song in the Bond movie is fantastic. It's one of the best Bond themes ever written. That's my hot take, oh my baby. Lordy, wow. Lordy, I'm sticking to it. You really made us wait for that hot take, but it. it I'm turning came. green. <laughs> Um, but one, yeah, right? I like Turning Red. Patches, you saw Turning Red before any of us, I think, and Did we're it? really high on it. I am. Uh, yeah, because I remember, I remember you telling us, like, we really need to see it before I had seen yeah, it. Yeah, I loved, loved, loved this movie. Um, I think because yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed Luca, too, for its kind of down-to-earth, force-specific quality, like, David, to your point, the Pete Doctor-ness of, here's abstract ideas that we're going to try and grapple with through animation because we can do anything and go anywhere. We're going to heaven. We're going I mean, inside someone's I mean, mind. Everything you're saying right now sounds pretty good. It's just the way that he does it. I guess. Uh, well, I, I was looking for the alternative to that. I do think we're in the kind of like phase three of, of Pixar handing off to a new generation of, of animators. A lot of the people who came up in shorts are kind of working on the movies at different capacities. And now um, you have Domi Shi who is just bringing a totally different energy, even to from Luca. Luca was exciting because it was it felt cartoony. It felt like the designs were matching the not just the storytelling but the landscapes, and like it all felt very organic and different than the Pixar character models that we'd known. And and this does too, in a way, um, from the the cartooning elements of of bringing real young girls to life, but also their energy and the quality of how they act around boys or how they act around Fortown when they're gushing or when they act at school or like they're con- when uh, the main character Mai is at school, she's studying, she's talking to her mom. Like Definitely May. It's just, May. it's May. You um, have to say it. And all, the, all these, I just, I just felt like the energy was millennial in a weird way. I, I, I don't know how, how another way to put it. Someone who has been online and someone who is like keeping fan fiction from their parents. You know, there was this huge viral thing happening because someone was dismissing Turning Red online this weekend talking about like, oh, no one, who hides this stuff? Like fan fiction, what is this nonsense? No one does this. And then like a thousand people are retweeting this being like, wait, uh, someone said that no one hides fan fiction. Yeah. And then it was totally like made up and this is, this never happens. And then, you know, thousands of people are like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. If this movie has this kind of Tumblr quality, um, uh, the way that she's obsessing and the way she's keeping secrets and the way she's she's living two lives it feels like an online life and it feels like a uh a studious uh, dedicated to her mom life and it feels really relatable to me uh as someone who did not experience the kind of overbearing mom experience it just experienced trying to have parents and trying to be an individual that conundrum um and this is kind of next level i thought just the characterization was was really true and the adventure is fun like when she turns into a giant red panda what would you do with that well you'd probably impress all of your friends and take pictures and go and use all your superpowers um it just felt down to earth while having big stakes i thought the jump to what you were saying katie at the end of the movie when it goes full kaiju um and has this kind of magical element it felt really natural to make that leap, and I think anime is the answer. Like the the way magic operates in a lot of the anime that I know inspired. We've been talking a lot about the the, the shows uh, from like Sailor Moon to Ramen and a Half and and Fruits Basket and the and the kind of shows that inspired Domi. Um, so that's in my head a little bit when I make that connection, but the leaps that anime is able to make to hey we're a bunch of people just sitting around the campfire or something and then hey we're fighting a giant beast or we're doing this (laughs) mystical adventure like anime has been able to make that leap and i feel like domi is bringing the dna to this movie to be able to do that um and maybe it starts with just how may acts as a normal kid in the beginning yeah like it's so grounded for so long like to the point that, like, I've been to Toronto a handful of times, but the streets look like Toronto and the com- the convenience store and, like, the setting in 2002 with the Tamagotchis and, the again, the style of the boy band music. So it does kind of give you a a solid footing to leap into the fantastical. And, again, like, I didn't mean to just diss on Pete Doctor forever, but that specificity is something that's not part of every Pixar movie. Like, Toy Story is so generic in the, like, boy life that it is set in. And it's such a pleasure to, like, be in this you know, part of the world that I don't know much about, but I feel like I know so well. And like that it's a love letter from Domi Shi 
to the place that and it she doesn't grew feel up nostalgic. And she really is able to bring all that. Don't you think that's a difference? No. Like Toy Story has a kind it of nostalgic haze and that creates universality. Yeah, and like uh like kind of like a false nostalgia right. for like a period that never really existed. I don't is it a period piece just because she wanted it to be and she wanted it to be from when she was a, a tween? That's how it reads know. to me at least. Because I mean, it's like we- peak boy band era, so it makes sense. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. you have to deal more with the internet and and social dynamics of present yeah. day if you had to make it a present day movie, which would be a little annoying. Yeah, like having her go viral on TikTok as a panda oh, would really um, complicate the entire thing. Yes. <laughs> I like this movie, but I'm going to pick away at the edges of it a little bit because it has some seams that uh, could rip open and tear the whole thing apart. David, what if I was making a movie about David Ehrlich, who was living, uh, let's say, in Utah, and where there aren't a lot of Jewish people, and so you guys are the representation of Jewish people, and um, you live inside of a temple, and you make money off of uh, showing non-Jews your temple and selling products, and then um, you discover you have the magical power to manifest a yarmulke on your head, and your what? friends are all like, oh my god, I've never seen a yarmulke. Can I take my picture with you? Mm. Didn't you just sell out your entire culture? Uh, that, you I know... mean, if I was 12 years old, I certainly wouldn't give a shit. But uh, Exactly. I, I, uh, I'm really stuck on the idea of me, David Ehrlich, living A, in Utah, but B, and more, more uh, discombobulatingly, in a temple. Because that's what this movie is. is she's, I want to see your magical yarmulke, by the way, if you ever get one. I, well, that I have. Yeah, okay. Oh, really? She, she has the, the, the family... Really clench pops up. The family honor part of uh, Eastern cultures that are very different from Western cultures and our, uh, you know, uh, relationships to our parents. But there's this also this, like, very vague Chineseism that's still tacked on. Uh, like, even the title I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because it means becoming a communist to people that like it was used it was used as like hate speech back in the day like calling somebody a red like if you call a little chinese girl a red uh you are uh, like basically causing a hate crime against them in some sort of way i really feel like this is a beautifully designed and animated movie um i really like how they've changed the human characters uh to be uh, design instead of just one face that gets kind of squashed and stretched uh, to show different types of ethnic groups or people even in Encanto people are in the same family uh, these uh, characters have uh, humanistic designs that allow them to move in a way uh, to express humor I love how everything moves I love that we're now at the point uh, that Pixar went through uh, simulating real things with I think Toy Story 4 where they're like this is how this lens would look and like this sort of writing thing uh, to making uh, cartoons that are meant to be cartoons uh, all the way through so the design feeds that Uh, the hair which they pioneered and like Monsters Inc is back and it scales this time and Mm. so uh, the mom when she's a larger version of Panda has like rope thick hairs and like glorious fur indeed and uh, when uh, May turns into the panda, hers is like looks fuzzy and feels fuzzy uh, on top of it. I think it's an amazing technical achievement, but I don't think it's quite there in being the being representation outside of an immigrant in Toronto. I think if it tries to stray into that, like I don't really know what we're saying about the mom and the relationship to the mom. That isn't um, my Asian mother's a dragon lady, which is something that I've seen Ooh. lots of times. I don't know if that's true at all. I think the way that it gets into the mom near the end is really interesting. Just about like what you learn from your mom that you then pass on to your t- children, mm. like and having her kind of caught in the middle generally generation. I love that. Still feeling like the I mean, pressured as someone daughter. Who's, as, oh, sorry, Katie, go on. Oh yeah, just like as as the if you were a daughter who had a lot of pressure put on you, you will probably put a lot of pressure yeah. on your daughter. And I'm it's kind of that is the it's trick. kind of surprise as presented in the movie. Like <laughs> I, the the I love that they bring the whole family in. Like it could have been the mom and the daughter the whole time, but we're going to see kind of the generational, not trauma is the wrong word, but just like uh, this is how I discipline, and this is how you discipline. I don't know if you wouldn't call it. I don't know if you wouldn't call it trauma. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's uh, maybe an overused word. Yeah. That's why I, the only reason I. I just want to say, well, two things. The first is that if you want to see another excellent movie about 
a uh, Chinese American. Oh, is she uh, Domishi? Is she Chinese American? Chinese Canadian. Chinese Canadian, of course. The aggressively Canadian, Canadian movie. Um, yeah, it is an but, aggressively uh, Canadian um, movie. If you want to see another movie about a Chinese American woman who is uh, had too much pressure put on her as a as a girl, not by her mother. Uh, and is now putting too much pressure on her own daughter. Check out Everything Everywhere All at oh Once. Oh, my God. Stop. Oh, my God. I also want to say that for as someone who, uh No, but I love this movie, and I think it's going to have a really uphill battle uh, with some people. But um, I uh, also want to say, as someone whose hypothetical life and magical Jew powers were made an example of earlier in the segment, that right. my, my tendency is sight unseen, and I have to emphasize sight unseen for this movie, vis-a-vis Dave's complaints is to think that if someone is telling their own story of their own upbringing, it is rooted in a truth and specificity that outweighs whatever broader uh, cultural abstractions that you are drawing from it. I mean, that's, I, I don't want to be too generic. I have to be because I haven't seen the film, but I, I, I tend to give the, the tie goes to the runner in this case, where I, I tend to think that if she's accurately representing or riffing on her own experience, then that's fair game. I'm, de- I'm definitely nitpicking, but it doesn't help to do this so close after after Yang, which I felt dealt with that directly, like head on. Like, how are we even defining this? How are we defining representation? What spears deserve to be represented and what spears, you know, are, have to sort of like wear the hat in order for someone else later on to sort of get the full thing of it? I feel like that, you know, came a full about. Turning Red is a delightful mother-daughter story, and I think you're right. Everything that I'm finding wrong with it, I'm sure, is based off of a specific real thing that happened, and I definitely, you know, have <laughs> friends with these types of uh, mothers. I just think it's... Uh, a... When this... Early on, this movie came out with, like, uh, there was a Cinema Blend review nobody liked, <laughs> or it basically said... Uh, this movie wasn't for what me, and it's like unrelatable. Mm, I don't know. That's not that's not what I'm saying. It is very relatable. The teenage energy is there. The parental energy is there. I'm saying the little accoutrements that are hung on it are so personal that I don't know how to read them correctly. I feel that's like it. I willfully described how a Chinese, uh, how her Chinese culture is commodified in this movie. I don't necessarily feel like I felt that while the movie was going on. It was more afterwards where I was trying to really get a hold of But aren't these mistakes she's are. making? Like, isn't she learning from these experiences on some level? That Maybe. I mean, I don't want to talk about the end, but the end also sort of mm. decides who gets to have certain things. I only saw Coco once, but I had a sort of interesting uh, analogous experience there where I felt, um, and I think pop- some of this you know, came from from knowing that the team who made the movie was was predominantly not uh, Latino, or you know that I felt the movie was sort of wearing uh, Mexican culture like a hat, and it reminded me a little bit too much of Epcot Center. Um, and the yeah, this movie does not from that feel that, but way. like reaction seemed to be from that community overwhelmingly that they responded warmly to the movie and they felt seen by it. And in a case like that, I was just like, all right, well, I'm. I mean, yeah, you, you were feeling here is more valid than my like half second takeaway of just like, huh, I, I feel like there's a layer of artifice here um, and yeah. I'm happy to sort of pass the torch. I don't know if that's a one to one analogy to what Dave's talking about in terms of turning red. I mean, red, it, but it, it, does it, ver- it very me. well might be the only person uh, of the actual background that uh, is allowed to have a say on this uh, that I've read so far is Walter Chaw, who also lives in Denver. Uh, his reveal, review on film oh, Creek should re- is sort of like this you is should a good re- read Polygon's review. Why? Why can't? Why is Polygon's review discredited? Wow. I mean, wow. does Polygon's review say what I just said? Oh no, I'm just saying it's from an Asian American. Oh, I'm just person. saying I have well, been reading. Polygon a- or something? Hey, wait, yeah, read I, Polygon. Reading- Guys, in theaters this <laughs> April, Polygon. Uh, every A24 is Polygon. Sorry. I've been reading Turning Red reviews from lots of people because as, as immediately as that bad Cinema Blend review came out, I'm like, I want to see how this fucking reflects the rest of the reviews. So there are some reviews that aren't reviews of the movie. The reviews of how much people that got the movie. And I'm sure Polygon's review is not that. Neither is Walter Chaz, but he does have the perspective that, you know, as somebody who is an Asian man who grew up with a domineering Asian mother, he's like, I don't know if telling the truth and slipping into a trope is the same thing. And all I'm saying is, sure. like, if that's close, we should at least consider it. I'm definitely I'm saying, saying watch I'm Turning saying, Red. You know, I, I'm certainly not 
trying to wager. Oh, you could call me racist again. I could, I could have done a <laughs> no. Speedy Gonzalez I mean, I, argument. Again, I, I did a I haven't, Jew I haven't Utah movie, argument, and obviously I guess somebody I, telling. I guess their I just own, see it as flawed because I don't. Story. Wait one second, yeah, Batches. Yeah, obviously, someone telling their own story in no way absolves them of criticism of how they tell mm. that story. Hmm. Uh, it just sounded to me from the way you were talking about it versus talking about it versus the way uh, that I've heard other describe others describe the film and how specific and personal is their experience that it sounded like you were ad potentially you know abstracting something from it that was maybe not you know really what the movie yeah was it's doing, interesting but, I, don't but I, I i don't know where i don't know where you think it's like cashing in on chinese heritage or like wearing it as window dressers I, I don't really i guess i don't really i mean that's what that's what she does so like I don't know what real what real lessons did we learn about Chinese culture from this movie because there's a lot of fake lessons that have to do with the plot. But, but the other thing really is she's learn? not she's Chinese Canadian, like she is. Yeah, I I don't know what you want her to represent or like you're talking about representation. What do you want her to represent? Like she does float between like Canadian culture and Chinese culture. Isn't that what she's supposed to do? Play fast and loose because of where she is in the dynamic. Uh, yeah, I think so. And I think the movie does deal with that up until the way it ends. And then it sort of ends in a very, I don't know, happily ever after way that had me questioning what I was supposed to take from the greater metaphors if that's how they end. Uh, but yeah, I mean, cause I didn't necessarily take the panda as menstruation. It's just adult emotion. It's adult emotion. You can't control and sometimes it's cute, and sometimes it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. But it's do you think that if you did that... take it as menstruation, you would be less hung up on the idea of it also being uh, somehow alluding to communism? Uh, may- maybe I I don't know. It's like I get that's like, not I'm a not sentence a... I ever thought that I would say for the record. But is it adult? <laughs> is it adult emotion, <laughs> or is capacity? it women operating in this world, and and like specifically women? I don't know if it's as universal hmm. as adult emotion. I think that is tough and kind of undermine. I don't know. It takes something away from what this movie is really about, which is a daughter, a mother, a grandmother, aunts trying to navigate this world together, um, being taunted by men and bo- and, and you know, May's adversary is is a boy who's continuing to give her shit about who she is and um, what she wants to be, and then when she becomes the Red Panda. He loves her and wants him wants her to come to his party. Um, and he completely won eighties. I don't know. There is, there are relations. Buys her, but she but she cashes that in. I mean, she does. She sells she herself slips. and her culture. But isn't that to a boy? And do you think that the movie thinks that's good? I'm paying you get your butt down here. No, I don't think it's good. It's just weird. It's all. It's weird. not weird. It's how you navigate and, the world. You accidentally do this. People accidentally do this. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think that if you're going to, like... It, okay, you know what? Fine. I think that there are definite, uh, you know, seams that I'm picking at, but if they're, no, they're not, well, not bothering other people, then it's not a huge deal. <laughs> I just sort of feel <laughs> I'm like... I'm not trying to lure you over to my side, either. I find this fascinating. The, the, it sounds like it you're, not, you're not completely, uh, you know, on a raft here with this. D- um, Disney, Disney Pixar used to have stories that were so fucking workshopped, they would blow entire movies up and they'd rewrite them, basically like four guys, and then maybe like get some other people hmm. out. That period's over, and now we're in a new situation where they are pivoting, and maybe they are going to have a little bit more personal stories from directors, which is fine. But I'm seeing better a than bit fine. Of, I would say. I mean, three people li- are credited for the story, and two screenwriters on this movie. So it's still like yeah. going through the process. Whatever the the author, author authorial uh, uh, like dictum that there has to be for animation directors, uh, I feel like it needs a little bit more sanding in hmm. the process. Uh, but again, I'm not. I don't have specific things that I would do different if I was making Turning Red. I think basically what like you're I saying is that you... think it's a beautiful, you... well-designed movie that's executed exactly as it would be executed. What you're I saying, you would have preferred it if it were... Like, is it menstruation or is it adult feelings? All these other weird things about being an immigrant family and being othered, rushed in, that I didn't have immediate answers for as an adult. And maybe that's the, the glory of this being a family movie, is kids get the good message that the dad tells her at the end 
and uh, the rest is just fun panda oh. that looks absolutely amazing. I, I'm now going to try for a third time to shoehorn in this dumbass joke, and now I'm going to put a hat <laughs> All right, on everybody quiet down, quiet down. Here comes David's joke. I think, I think, I, basically what I'm getting from what you're saying, Dave, is that you would have preferred it if it weren't about the panda but about the uh, original panda that inspired the toy. I can't even fucking remember anymore. Also, uh, I want to point out uh, something that I just saw. Okay, now, okay. now David's okay. going to tell us. Okay. Right. So, so no! for the listeners Whoa, out there, no, 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 no. for the listeners out there, what happened is I was doing a long windup that I stumbled over three times to a stupid joke about how Buzz Lightyear <laughs> is not about the toy, but about the guy who inspired the toy. <laughs> but it's the panda cool. equivalent. You can sort of extrapolate where I was going from that. But more importantly, now adding on top of that is a tweet that I just saw pointing out uh, someone was just watching the documentary on the making of Turning Red. Uh, this is Twitter user Jim Foronda. Uh, they're watching a documentary on the making of Turning Red, and they can't stop laughing at one of the unused titles for the film, which is My Neighbor Toronto, which uh, is excellent. <laughs> that is brilliant. And, yes. and may have uh, led, may, may not have led Dave down the same uh, historical rabbit holes. Oh, wow. Well, I yeah. love turning red. Anyway, <laughs> I yeah, it was I think I also really enjoyed turning I red. Cannot wait to watch it. I had three people over for dinner last night. Two people over for dinner, and I guess my wife was also here. And we ended up just sitting on the couch and watching a bunch yes, of trailers. My wife and we, was also well, here. Well, she was the. I was just doing the math. Like it wasn't three people for dinner. It was four people. The other one of whom lives with me. One plus two, uh, plus and one. then two other people. Um, and plus one. we ended up watching all of the trailers for Turning Red, and it looked excellent. I can't wait to watch it uh, when I go away. This Katie, time. final word, Turning Red. Is it a great mother-daughter story? Do you get those very I, often? I think, I, I, you know, it's only only when a mother turns into a bear can anyone truly understand the uh, power of the story. And uh, pandas not count, too. Pandas are bears. Wait, uh, are red pandas bears? Uh, pandas are... Sure. Are not bears. No, wait. No, koala yeah. bears are not bears. That's... I'm getting confused. Katie, did you have a four-town moment? Uh, what was your boy band of choice? Did you have to, like, Well, we did. We around? did this last week. Oh, man. I wasn't yeah. um, Damn it. Well, I lived in such a small place that, like, like there was not, like, a concert that would come through that I could sneak out to. Like, it just was not feasible. Um, but I loved it. I wanted it that way, as so I said in last week's Lightning Round question. Mm. I mean, Jonathan Taylor Thomas was my real... Uh, Ooh. Yeah. Real one. Uh, what was that movie he was in with Teen- Tim Allen? Or oh, Man of the House? Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, that, yeah. Right. No, that movie came home with VHS. That was, I, I, there's just no way it holds up, right? No, I don't. Maybe I'll be able to look back and be like, he was an attractive boy. Yeah, yeah, you probably would, but like, also, he just looks like a child. Did you have posters like, in your room growing up, Katie? What, what oh, were girls' yeah, rooms no, like I, I, when I was like twelve? I don't know. I didn't go in them. <laughs> uh, I had a lava lamp, and I had uh, posters of like Jonathan Taylor Thomas, and like. Brad Renfro was one of them in there. Oh, wow. Devin Sawa. Oh, yeah. of course, of course. Devin Sawa, like, still on Twitter. Brad Renfro? Brad Renfro. He Were you was a big in, Bully um, fan? He was in Huck. He was in the Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Tom and Huck. Oh, shit. He was, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Tom, Tom and Huck. Huck. Boy, oh, boy. Um, yeah. I should see if I can find pictures of my room when I was in middle school. Like, I made a lot of collages. Like, I would cut up Entertainment Weeklies and, like, make collages. Boys didn't do that, probably. No, no. No, when she when she draws the 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 uh like fan fiction of herself in her notebook, uh, I suddenly had a memory from my teenagers years, which is I tried to draw like a naked woman once. It was just so embarrassed by the prospect of like me not knowing how to draw slash that I was doing it that I never got into drawing things that I thought were sexually attractive. This is why just rabbit doesn't work there. for you. It exactly. All... It just was like all the proportions <laughs> are wrong. Uh, that does it for this week. Next week, we're talking about Severance, which is airing on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, catch up. Are people watching so we'll this talk, show, we'll do you think? Like, real people? People are uh, tweeting about it. I, I think one issue with the show is that it shares the same uh, title as a book by Ling Ma, and it was not until I finished the first episode that I was like, wait, <laughs> this is not an adaptation 
of uh, of that book. Uh, and then I was mad at the show. For Not a problem. I'm having a novel that is four years old. <laughs> uh, anyway, pointing out there. The new. I think people uh, are the new it. Ben Stiller joint. Is our next stop. Yeah. Uh, watch it. Watch along with us. We will talk up through episode six when airing this Friday. Um, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I am Matt Patches, deputy editor at Fighting in the uh, Fighting in the Worm dot com. Doesn't need a deputy <laughs> I think you're probably. at least you a senior editor. Yeah, can I get on. a promotion? Uh, I'm deputy editor polygon.com. <laughs> we also have fightingintheworm.com. You want to listen to old episodes uh, like our Scream 4 review from 2011, maybe? Is that a thing? Uh, maybe <laughs> I don't know if we got there. But um, yeah, fightingintheworm.com. Uh, I'm David Rolick. Just as a closing thought for this week's episode, I just want to point out that in all of the Dark Souls games and now Elden Ring. There's a character named Patches, uh, the bald trickster who is sort of the running joke. He's like the Biggs and Way. I don't know what's the equivalent in a movie series of someone who just shows up in every installment. Um, he's like Stan Lee in the Marvel movies, right. uh, except for he's a giant pain in your ass, and he is gone by such names as uh, he'll either, like fight with you or like fight against you or like trick you and run away. He's gone by such names as Trusty Patches in Dark Souls. Patches the Spider in Bloodborne, and Unbreakable Patches in Dark Souls 3 and the DLC. Uh, the Dark Souls 2 had a Patches style character, but he was known as Mild Mannered Pate for some reason. <laughs> um, anyway, I plan on finding Patches in Elden Ring. I've seen the screen count of the Elden Ring uh, <laughs> Patches, so he, he is out there, and uh, I'm surprised I haven't heard more about this uh, from people as they play Elden Ring, but Godspeed. Um, anyway, uh, if you would like to leave a comment about finding patches in Elven Ring or do it in the format of a review of our show, go on iTunes and Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. Uh, tell us about your experiences with patches, either IRL or in the lands between. <laughs> I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also hear me expanding my uh, thoughts that fighting is the best way to have a podcast. Over at the Trial by Content podcast, where we debate pop culture topics every Tuesday. Check it out wherever you hear podcasts. You can also email all of us if you have to say an international review, uh, because we can't see those, therefore can't read them out loud, but we'd love to have your opinions and get your five stars. So if you leave an international review, make sure to also send it to fitwr.podcast at gmail.com so we can make sure you're heard, even though you're not in the U.S. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair on the Little Goldman podcast, where if you wanted to hear us talk about uh, the Critics' Choice Awards in a way other than making vague jokes about the Williams sisters, uh, you can do that. Hear me there. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where we would truly love to hear about your teenage bedrooms, or at least I would. Or you can answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of X and Deep Water, what cinematically sexy moment didn't work for you. Thanks for listening and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'm done.